This is a Socialist News and Views special interview. I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. When you hear that local, state, and federal police agencies are banding together to find new ways to coordinate surveillance of journalists and use technology to drastically expand access to private data of reporters, activists, and many other people, you want to know more about it. So I reached out to someone who has worked at documenting police surveillance and technology on MIT, Technology Review, Unicorn Riot, and other places. We have a lot to cover, so let's go straight to the interview. A note, one acronym that is not explained in the interview is FOIA, which refers to a Freedom of Information Act request, essentially an official form filed with the government requesting information. Here's the interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. You want to just tell us who you are real quick? Yeah, um, I'm Sam Richards. Um, People know me as Minneapolis Sam on Twitter, which might be imploding currently. Um, (laughs) Right. But for the time being, I'm there. Um, I'm an independent journalist in Minneapolis, and I, uh, I guess my bread and butter continues to be surveillance, um, police reporting, and protests, and how all those things sort of intersect. Right. Um, but I do a lot of other work on other things as well, but that's really where I'm focused, especially because Minneapolis and Minnesota, for whatever reason, continues to be a deep well of those stories in particular, so... There's a lot of uh, underreported news here on that front, and I'm happy to work on those. Yeah, I mean, I think I think Minneapolis and uh, you know Portland maybe are kind of the front lines of the ongoing uh, battle of ideas that spills out into the uh, streets on numerous occasions here. But you've done a lot of great reporting, and I was you know the same before. Uh, you know, you're the reason I got to start doing the podcast coming out of the Occupy movement um, with the. Uh, internet radio stuff that you put together so just want to thank you for that and uh appreciate oh, that yeah. yeah i'm really glad that you are still doing it right i know you took a break for a while yeah. but i'm glad that you're carrying on the work because it's uh it's important i mean we're lucky in minnesota to have a pretty good um reporting and news media kind of um ecosystem but i always will say that there's definitely a need for more independent especially non-corporate uh media people so oh it's um, super glad to be here and yeah absolutely yeah i don't make i don't make tons of money if anything i hemorrhage money doing <laughs> this reporting so uh, i'm <laughs> losing money all the time or trying to help support other things that i cover on the show well you've done a lot of great reporting and um i just wanted i thought we could like kind of w- start with some of the newer stuff and work our way back just a little bit um mm-hmm. you know the stuff that i was seeing most recently, and I don't know, there might be even more uh, stuff was around the uh, the Operation Safety Net, the surveillance of social media stuff. I think that MIT Technology Review um, was where I was looking at some of the stuff most recently. Is that is that the most recent stuff, or is there is there a newer uh, uncovering since then? Um. Well, aside I think four from, months ago uh, was the newest thing. Yeah. Yep. That was the that was the newest on that the Operation Safety Net. Um, front, I guess you'd call it. I, I did a little bit of reporting recently about Minneapolis's, uh, I kind of think, botched drone rollout program for the police department. Huh. And um, that, you know, uh, that might be of interest to you too, because, you know, they were talking about use cases for drones where they would use them to de-escalate situations, <laughs> which is kind of confusing. Um, and then very quickly thereafter, they were flying them over homeless encampments and obviously that was not sort of a critical SWAT type situation, but it just, I thought it was a perfect example of how they speak out of both sides of their mouth. And it really makes you question who's actually in charge of the police department here, because I actually ran into mayor Fry at city hall and asked him directly about this. And he seemed to not really even know the details about the program and, he went so far as to tell me that it wasn't decided that the police were going to use drones after they'd already been flying them. And the, the police spokespeople went to city council and told them that the program was already in the works. So there, there's a lot there 
but um, to get back to your original question, well, I would say I was yeah, just going to say I would say drones are like the opposite of de-escalation. I've been watching some of the stuff of you know some of the drones, for example, that are getting used. There's I think there's a variety of drones getting used, like with like in Ukraine and stuff right now, and mm-hmm. <laughs> drones in civilian areas like flying around, especially you know drones that are operated by the state are like terrifying. I would say they're the opposite of. Uh, <laughs> of something that would de-escalate a situation, you know? Right, and that's that was what I was talking to him about, too. I was like, how how on earth would a drone be used to de-escalate a situation? Right. And I said, like, presumably, because this was after Techley Sundberg had been mm. executed by the MPD while he was in a pretty obvious mental health crisis. Right. And they, Mayor Fry said, you know, we would fly them up to the window. And I was like, well, you think if somebody's barricaded in a room, they're going to just leave the blinds open when they know a SWAT team's outside? This is preposterous. Right. And yeah, and people like WCCO and other news outlets were interviewing people that were like, well, there's a crime situation here and we want them to have all the tools available and that usual line. But right. how, how would a drone prevent crime unless you're talking about having them over perpetually? Right. And it's like we, we already have a citywide network of cameras, and that doesn't seem to make too much of a dent with preventing crime. So it's just it's just not to mention not to mention the helicopters to. and spy planes that I'm sure we'll you yeah. know, get into a little bit more. But I mean I was seeing that one flying over the other night. Well, I don't know if that was Halloween or the day after. But there was that one making circles, like it flew basically over my house, like multiple different times. And I don't think anybody would, I hope, want to be seeing, you know, drones flying around all parts of the city, you know, looking for, looking for the, you know, uh, chance of crime. It seems like, you know, unreasonable uh, surveillance to me. Well, let's just, let's talk about the Operation Safety Net uh, stuff to start. Can you just... um, you know, kind of in a high level, talk about what that was and when that started and, and, and what you found about that, you know, continuing since or. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, it's a, it's a big ball of wax. There's a right. lot of threads to pull on and um, we can, we're trying to continue the reporting. There's been some um, personal things with my core reporter and um, which has slowed things down, which is obviously totally fine. Right. Um, but there, you know, it's, it's been kind of surprising too, because a lot of these stories you would think would be followed up by major media, but they're, um, for whatever reason, one or another, right. there hasn't been much follow through except for on technology review and, um, you know, trickling out in other places that I've written on this stuff, but just a high level overview. It's, you know, we, we had this multi-agency police effort, um, which, it was ironically sort of uh, horizontally organized, which I'm still going back and forth on whether that was deliberate in order to kind of obfuscate the chain of command. Right. But you have, you know, dozens of police agencies, local, state, and federal, with, you know, depending on the jurisdiction, you weren't able to tell who was actually making certain decisions at certain times. And that would include things like tear gassing neighborhoods and shooting reporters with rubber bullets. Um, and other actions that have resulted in major lawsuits, and so the chain and, of command. And this came around, screwed. and this is this kind of came about um, around when the National Guard was stationed in Minneapolis, or was this did yep. this start bef- essentially start before that? Um. So yeah, I, I guess I should have backed up a little bit, but the um, this is all in response to the um, the police murder of George Floyd and the subsequent unrest and riots that happened. And so they, it was the largest deployment of National Guard troops in Minnesota history under the command of Tim Walls, the governor, um, and, you know, Steve Harrington at the BCA and the, uh, sorry, Department of Public Safety. Um, and it was, it was sort of a effort to stop the hemorrhaging of the police who, in Minneapolis, who were quitting in mass, mm. and which, you know, I, I can understand. I wouldn't want to be a cop in that situation either. Right. Um, but, you know, they were taking PTSD claims and everything else afterwards. And that might be a conversation for another day. But sure. long story short, Operation Safety Net was this, you know, paramilitary operation that reporters were having an extremely hard time getting information out. 
people at the state legislature were telling us that, you know, they would be getting briefings from people in command of different agencies that were a part of the operation, but they wouldn't answer questions. And it really was, it was very much a counterinsurgency operation. They were throwing every resource they had at the problem. And it's interesting to see some of these after action reports that the police had to put out. And in their own words, they were saying things like, we were arresting people without knowing what charges they were put under. And we were just trying to throw everything at the wall to get some sort of quote unquote order back in the city. Mm. And this is all, it's important to remember, this is all because of what the Minneapolis police did to George Floyd. Right. And the ham, the ham fisted response that every level of leadership, local, state, even federal in some aspects failed to do to sort of, admit fault and um, talk about things they would do to change. And the community responded in a way that you would expect after hundreds of years of oppression. And so if all you have is a hammer, every everything, you know, all the problems look like a nail. Right. And so my interest, besides the, um, you know, trying to track down what people were even being shot with because they wouldn't answer what type of less lethal munitions they were using, and that's important because it's, <laughs> you have to remember, this was occurring during a respiratory pandemic. Right. So the, the people were being hit with tear gas. It was wafting into their apartments and neighborhoods and everywhere else in some cases. The cops wouldn't tell you what people were breathing in. Mm. And then the whole issue of surveillance, that just, it seems like they kind of just open the floodgates. And, and one more and thing to highlight resources. with the gases and stuff, I know this was a problem here in the cities, but maybe even more of a problem in places like Portland. This wasn't just, mm-hmm. you know, not that protesters should be sprayed with with gas, but this was not just affecting the people out on the street protesting. These are There's people right. in their apartments and other people just around the places where protests might be taking place that are getting basically the same effect of lots of gas coming into their uh, into their own buildings and things like that. So there's lots of people that are getting essentially hit with, uh, you know, potentially even military uh, type we- uh, type gas weapons, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and then the um, I'm not sure if you made it up there at the time, but uh, a little while because we're kind of jumping around a little bit. But there was another police murder um, in Brooklyn Center, Kim Potter, who killed Dante Wright during right. a traffic stop that went wrong. There, the police station up there was literally, it's like across the street from a bunch of apartment buildings. And so they were frequently gassing people. And like you said, it was wafting into their apartments. Yeah, and I think it was, I think, I think the one I was remembering, I think it was actually at the um, fifth precinct, if I recall, when people had marched over there. I knew another person who I, who's not involved, as far as I know, is not involved in any of the protests or anything that was just in their apartment and there were like fire alarms were going off from mm-hmm. what I heard because of the um the gas and other stuff that was in the air um I don't know if right. they, they were using like smoke bombs or some other kinds of like you know devices that created a lot of smoke but anyway for whatever reason they had to evacuate this apartment building of some people that I knew over there um mm-hmm. so yeah it's do you want to just talk quick about um the operation safety net you said it was kind of like horizontally organized do you want to like hit on a couple of the like uh, some of the agencies that were involved in that. Um, oh yeah, I, I kind of wish I had a. Uh, it's funny. I tried to jot down some highlights, but there's literally so much. It's it, hard. You could write. You could write books about some of these, even just like weeks, like day by day, what happened. You could write volumes about it, but you know, it was it was every single um, uh, law enforcement organization in the metro area. Places in far-flung locations that are far away from the Twin Cities were bringing, I almost said troops, but police officers and state patrol to the cities um, to deputize them for this civil unrest mission. And then you have uh, state level, like the state patrol, which was doing tons of aerial surveillance, um, as well as having their own troopers on the ground. Uh, There are these mobile field force units, which are comprised of you know, they're their own task force of different agencies. Um, and then you have the BCA, you have the FBI, Homeland Security, uh, like you pointed out, the National Guard. And it was literally like 
every single law enforcement organization you could think of was involved in some way or another. And um, it's, it was interesting, too. Initially, some of the agencies were a little reluctant to help, but they obviously, like the Department of Public Safety, Governor Walls, and the other um, top brass, I guess you could call them, they got everybody involved. And mm. so there was really this mass mobilization. And I, I mentioned it before, but it was the largest deployment of National Guard troops in our state's history. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, there's so many people involved that, like, if you wanted to do a full audit of everything, you'd have to go to dozens of different agencies. Um, and, so, And what I read, um, just, sorry, I don't want to, uh, but what, what I uh, read... Um, Essentially, Waltz had said essentially that this Operation Safety Net as such was like wrapping up at some point too. And then, you know, mm-hmm. from what you found, my understanding is that was not the case. Is that like, like after the, after the, you know, supposed immediate and acute crisis was over, there was this idea that it was wrapping up, but it was ongoing and it, it's still yep. ongoing. Is that right? Yeah, more or less. Um, <clears throat> it, it's been interesting. So, I, I was kind of, um, how should I put this? I, I was thinking snarky was a good term, but they, they really couldn't get their story straight. And that might be part of because it was organized horizontally, mm-hmm. or at least had the appearance of that. So right. there wasn't like, at the time when we had police chief Arredondo here, he wasn't necessarily calling all the shots. Like if there was some kind of protest in, I don't know, uh, St. Paul or Maple Grove or somewhere, that specific agency would be apparently calling the shots at that time, but it was all under the umbrella of Operation Safety Net. So it it muddied the accountability and transparency in a really problematic way for citizens, reporters, legislators who have an oversight function of this stuff. Right. Um, But yeah, they did. There's a bunch of documents that say, like, here's phase one, two, three, four, and after, you know, at first the Chauvin trial, but then also they lumped in the Kim Potter trial, that was supposed to be when it was demobilized. Mm. But then we find that they were making announcements that weren't true because we uncovered documents from the Minneapolis police that literally had Operation Safety Net and Operation Safety Net 2.0 on mm. them. And so they were telling the public that this giant task force thing had ended and the mission was accomplished more or less, but behind the scenes, they were using those practices, those documents, the the same um, multi-agency approach to things like the Winston Smith shooting in Uptown. Mm-hmm. And so they, they used the unrest and their response to it as a sort of like a training type of situation. And I don't know if that was deliberate, but it turned out that like, Aerial surveillance was a huge component, and they literally said that, like, all those plane flights and the helicopters on almost a daily basis, it was critical to their mission. Mm -hmm. And so that's why now we're seeing much more emphasis of these state patrol planes and helicopters flying around way more than they ever did before the unrest. Right. Um, And so even things like their um, literal communications infrastructure was improved and the unrest was sort of like a field test for new technologies and things. Um, and I, I'll, I'll break a little bit of news here, I guess. There's a, um, <laughs> there's a, a facility in Roseville. It's a MnDOT facility. Um, you know, MnDOT, they're on the lease and they're, you know, it's one of their sort of um, transportation management facilities where they look at cameras and then they dispatch snow plows or tow trucks if there's a crash. And it's all kind of relayed through there. And during the unrest, the state patrol decided that they were going to build this giant antenna on top of that building. Mm. And um, it enables them to relay that aerial surveillance in real time to a big radius around the Twin Cities. Mm. And so you then can beam that information down to Uh, like a command vehicle, like those big trailers, or even a police officer's tablet or phone. Mm. And so that was one of the times where the unrest afforded them an opportunity to upgrade their surveillance 
and um, some would argue the militarization of the police in the cities, which I think is problematic because the whole unrest and the whole issue was that the police were too militarized and right. trampling on everyone else's rights. Right. And now we have an even more hardened police infrastructure because of that. So it's, it's been interesting to track it. Um, and yeah, and now like Operation Endeavor and Operation Gopher Guardian and all these multi-agency things that the police are doing sort of to supplement the lack of Minneapolis police officers or whatever, that's their new approach. And so instead of just going to Minneapolis police and saying, like, I want all the information on this operation that's going on in the future, you then have to go and get the information from, like, Hennepin County, Ramsey County, the state, and all these other agencies that have a stakeholder in that. Mm. And so it, it, it makes it more complicated. The, um, yeah, and I'm, sure it's, that's it's on, a, I'm sure that's on purpose. I mean, just given what we yeah. what we know from all these uh, agencies, we can call this uh, if you, if you break some news, we'll call this the soft break, like the soft opening yeah. of something. Because you know, I have regular listeners, but you know, it's a lot of activists and stuff. It's not you know, it's not mainstream media. Sure. There's not tons of so we'll call this the soft break of the news, and then you can like you know yeah. do the real break in like a month or something. Um, yeah. <laughs> so the other thing was, it sounded like. Another big area, in addition to the like physical surveillance, was a lot of um, social media yep. surveillance. Do you want to just touch on that a little bit, and then we'll talk about some of the other uh, things going back a little bit more? Yeah, and, and the, the social. I'm glad you brought that up too, because that is one of the major things, uh, and the, one of the things that I'm working on right now too, actually. Um, but just going back, just really quick. Yeah. That the whole issue of um, transparency and you know trying to get answers of this whole law enforcement operation. My, my co-reporter, Kate, she's, you know, she's more of a national focus at Technology Review. And so she'll talk to the NYPD and even like police in Los Angeles or whatever it happens to be. Sure. But her, her statement repeatedly to me is that like Minneapolis and Minnesota police, for whatever reason, they're the hardest in the country to get answers from. And I kind of just took that for granted because aside from like the FBI and Homeland Security, my main focus is usually Minneapolis. So I'm used to getting the runaround and sorting through, oh, this statement was false and here's why. Right. But it was just, it was kind of eye-opening to hear someone that's worked on a lot of other stories around the country say that specifically. Um, and that's something that I don't think a lot of people in Minnesota know. I agree. And it's, you have this city and state that, has a progressive reputation, but when it comes down to law enforcement, it's it might as well just be any old conservative <laughs> municipality, right? Because they 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 load the press. They don't like people that ask for data. They're intentionally obfuscating every opportunity they get, and then you can see that very clearly in Operation Safety Net. But even as a drone rollout, I, I went to City Hall and sat in a meeting, and people were venting their concerns the Minneapolis police that gave a presentation there, they were like, oh, we will create rules for this situation. We will create penalties if it's abused, da-da-da-da-da. And then at the end of the meeting, the chair of the public safety committee literally gaveled the meeting closed and ran out the door. And so I ran into her and Mayor Fry in his office, and it was just obvious that you have this bad faith approach. They're going to say that, we're only using drones for critical public safety incidents like the Techley Sunberg thing. And then they fly it over a homeless encampment. Mm -hmm. So you have to be extremely skeptical about what law enforcement in this state and city say because they're proven to be wrong constantly. And right after George Floyd was killed by Chauvin, the first press release to come out was that it was after a medical incident. Right. And so they, they, you know, they get flack for that. But then you just have reporters in more mainstream corporate outlets that will just be stenographers for what they say, even right. though they have routinely demonstrated that they will just lie. They lie. And so that, that I didn't mean to take that tangent as far. Well, there's but, been a, there's been a lot more of the um the the city council just kind of like running out the door so they don't have to address stuff. It seems like recently too. 
Like, uh, I was just reading about the rooftop depot, for example, and how people were trying to ask questions about that, but they just, like you said, gaveled the meeting basically to an end and like ran out the door or something like that, pretty much. So do you want to just quick talk about what's, um, what's, what they've been doing on social media? And then maybe we can talk about a couple other things quick. Yeah, definitely. Um, so that was, you know, everybody's online nowadays and it's what you put on social media, you can't presume to be just between you and your friends. Right. And I don't think that's news to anybody, (laughs) but it, it is different when you have FBI agents combing through your tweets and screenshotting things Mm -hmm. and then using these sort of advanced third party scraping tools, um, to create like a profile of your network. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the things I'm still trying to track down through the FBI uh, because they, <laughs> it, it came to my attention recently that there was a, um, a presentation, one of the FBI analysts who worked on Operation Safety Net uh, surveillance and specifically social media, uh, she gave to the International Association of Chiefs of Police at some conference in Texas. Like, I think it was Texas. I don't remember the city, but they were literally saying in their little briefing about what the talk would be that these are the the best, um, what did they say? It was like the best case sort of use cases for unrest in Minneapolis and then also for the January 6th assault on the Capitol. Mm. And they mentioned using these digital content analysis programs. um, And they also said that they're using Pegasus software. And so I, I FOIA'd twice now. My first FOIA was denied within like 72 or 48 hours, which is remarkably quick. Because mm. usually when you FOIA federal law enforcement, it takes them sometimes even years to get the information or even acknowledge that you've sent in a request. Mm-hmm. And so <laughs> they denied that flat out. And it was one of those denials where they're saying, we can't confirm or deny and we're not making profiles on people and that sort of thing but they did list the tools in this little advertisement for the talk and so it was interesting to see like not only were the state and local police using the unrest in minnesota to learn new techniques and build relationships with partner agencies and that sort of thing and literally build more infrastructure but also the fbi was learning from that And in their case, it was more centered on social media. Mm. Um, And so I always, especially activists, I always tell people that like Facebook is, it's clearly trash and it's never been secure. Right. Uh, Your messages are not secure. And I, I wish people would stop organizing protests and things on Facebook specifically, but social Mm -hmm. media overall. Mm -hmm. And you know, it kind of sucks because it's, it makes it a lot easier to mobilize people, but it's also riddled with um, sock puppet accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, y- y- everything is being potentially filed into these databases and they won't, you know, there's no transparency into that. Even when you have the name of the person <laughs> who does that work, the tools they use and the critical incident that they were using those tools to respond to. And even then they'll just say, well, we can't talk about methods and means, but they are monitoring speech online. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that the laws in this country and uh, the Supreme court have really caught up to free speech in a digital era. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that has all kinds of problems and nuance attached to it. But they, like I said, they literally use the unrest here as a opportunity to sort of hone their skills and field test new software and things. And right, I was I, trying I to look into the details, and I don't, I don't remember all the details, but I think it was from Michael Moore's Fahrenheit Eleven Nine movie or whatever. I think I'm remembering where they were doing um, war games to practice for like I think it was to practice for Iraq uh, mm-hmm. uh, things in like Detroit in some of like yeah. abandoned areas in Detroit and you know and they were like setting off munitions and stuff and most of the people in the town didn't even know what was going on you know and right. now they're making yeah. Minneapolis a testing ground for uh for surveillance and drones and all kinds of other things that they shouldn't be doing at all yeah absolutely and, and e- even more troubling too uh, not to cut you off no but you're good 
if with the um you know after the unrest and the election that followed it, it was interesting to watch because you know the online trolls were out in force and there was a referendum to not you know not fire all the cops in Minneapolis even though that's what the opponents of that referendum claimed would happen but mm. to disband the MPD the structure of the hierarchy and have a Department of Public Safety. Mm. And so that election, which was going to determine the fate of the department, we later find out that Minneapolis police officers at the facilities in which Operation Safety Net was coordinated, in some cases, were creating fake accounts with no legitimate public safety function. And then in some cases, messaging people like, you know, NAACP leaders and other people that had sway in the community over their discussions about that referendum, which would determine the fate of the department. And if that's not over the line, I don't know what is. Right. If you ha- you know, you're, you're using public resources and um, you know, police time in order to influence an election that determines the fate of that department. That, yeah. That's a scandal. And that was just one be. of the, like... Unfortunately, yeah. it is. It's, you're right. It should be a scandal. Unfortunately, like, a lot of things that should be scandals these days, it isn't. Yeah, and it, it was just one of those, like, momentary blips where people were like, well, that's crazy, if true. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of that information is still tied up in the uh, consent decree negotiations between the um, Department of... What is it? The Department of Human Rights and the Minneapolis Police. Mm-hmm. And so... I and other reporters who have tracked down and or tried to track down the exact like Twitter and Facebook accounts that were doing those, you know, potentially scandalous um, social media interactions. You can't get it because it's under negotiation. Right. And so there's, you know, there's bad faith on the side of Mayor Fry and the Minneapolis police to stall those negotiations. And who knows when we'll get that information. And by the time it's out, it's been years. And so, you know, we had the election recently where Mary Moriarty thankfully won. Um, But that wasn't, you know, that wasn't guaranteed. We could have had another wave of people that were super pro-police and super pro-incarceration that, you know, they're running under the Democratic ticket, but functionally they're as reactionary as the next Republican candidate. Right. But a lot of those, a lot of those people lost. And so I, um, I, I, I know, like we said before we started recording, I'm a little bit less worried about the course of things going ahead than I was before the election, but there's still so much going on behind the scenes that it's, it's going to take a while to get a really clear picture of this whole kind of um, last couple of years of what went down and who who is approving some of these things. Because, you know, like, I, I think it would be easy for some, the new chief of police or whoever, to say, like, well, yeah, they were using social media accounts that we set up for criminal investigations, but it was them doing it in a rogue capacity. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, um, there, there was all kinds of documents that were just burned at other police precincts um, because they were afraid that another police building was going to get torched by the riots. Mm. Uh, So we don't know what those files were and what that was trying to hide. Um, And there's, there's just so much and there's just not enough, you know, investigative reporters in town looking into these things. Um, And I'm (laughs) thankfully, I guess that's job security for me, but I'm sitting on a pretty huge backlog of documents that I have to publish. But it's like (laughs) you get to a certain point where news organizations are a little bit tired of these types of stories, even if they are newsworthy and super consequential to ongoing events. So I think it's it's super uh, important. And I wanted to just go, you know, the, the other thing, the intercept, um, I think you published some things there, like the first month of the year, specifically related to uh, Line 3 pipeline protests, and specifically yeah. related to uh, prosecution, and um, I think the, you know, the thing, the most newsworthy things in there might be, you know, like, trumped up charges, potentially uh-huh. against uh, 
against activists, but also the way in which the prosecutors were working with the energy companies and things like that. Do you want to just speak to that a little bit? Oh yeah, yeah. I gotta switch gears in my head just. To yeah, no, that. that's very fair. I understand the. I understand what uh, what's going on here. I got a few uh, a few tabs open here myself as well to uh, assist in uh, covering all this stuff. But you got a lot of good stuff coming out. So, and like you said, you got more to come. We got a lot to cover. So, that's yeah, uh, absolutely. That's fair. And uh, in that specific instance, it was. Um, I, I think a lot of people were really troubled when it came out that. Uh, Enbridge, like you said, was paying um, law enforcement millions and millions of dollars for basically to be their mercenary right. and enforce their their claims of private property. And I say claims because they never got uh, easements to build these pipelines on tribal lands in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. So there is a there is a big issue there. But of course, the police side with the people that are paying them to enforce private property because mm-hmm. that's sort of their role in society. Right. Um, and then it came down to not only were the police being paid, but um, county prosecutors were being paid time because there were so many cases that it was becoming a burden and they were having trouble pursuing, you know, non-protest related public safety issues. Right. Uh, and so then Enbridge and, Energy, I, I think it was just Enbridge in this case, mm-hmm. um, would pay those costs. And it was like staffing and other related costs. And that that was kind of crazy. Yeah, and it sounds pretty terrible. I mean, is that something you've ever seen, really seen before in your... Not in my experience, no. I haven't seen it. it. It's almost like something you see in a third world country, to be honest. Mm. And, the, you know... That that term's problematic in itself, but it it, it right. is sort of what you see there, like you know, spilling oil in Nigeria for decades, and right. all the money go, that they just kind of have blood money pay off to build a school or whatever, and then oh, no worries, you can mm-hmm. keep doing what you're doing, right. and then it comes to your state, which Minnesota. For people that are listening outside that don't know much, we, we pride ourselves on having the cleanest water in the nation. And then you have pipelines being built that are shooting um, bituminous crude oil, which is like chunky. And so these pipelines, they can't take that for very long. And they're already leaking into our waterways and wetlands. Um, And so that's that's a huge problem, too. And some of these charges were just completely ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I think this one was dropped recently, but... There was a, a one or two activists who they locked themselves into a pipe that was going to be, you know, put in the ground. Right. And it was just in this construction area. And so they were trying to charge them with um, felony aiding and abetting suicide because apparently it was a hot day. And oh. so therefore they clearly were trying to commit suicide, mm-hmm. which it, you don't even have to be a legal expert to see that that's a bunch of crap. Right. <laughs> And it was, you know, tons and tons of just very trumped up felony level charges. Right, and, and I think we, people don't appreciate, even if, you know, even if the charges are dropped, you know, just the fact of charging and or having to go to court around those charges, you know, yeah. and or being faced with, you know, the fact of, you know, long prison sentences or extreme uh, fines or other things like that is, you know, that, that's pretty, tr- can be pretty traumatic. <laughs> It can be totally. pretty, like, uh, you know, life-changing. I Absolutely. It, it affects your job prospects and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the people that were charged, you know, you have to make your court appearances. A, lo- a lot of the activists were coming from out of state mm-hmm. because, you know, they, they were compelled to try and stop this pipeline, which was bringing crude oil <laughs> through wetlands, to, potentially to Lake Superior. And, um, you know, it, I, I think it was... I think his name is Jim Henson, which is kind of funny, but yeah, right. he was a, a NASA climate uh, scientist. He was saying that, you know, if, if we burn off these tar sands, that's basically game over for the climate. Mm-hmm. And so there is this huge existential argument for why these people are justified protesting. And, they, you know, they're not doing anything crazy. We're not talking about, like, blowing things up. We're talking about, like, human barricades in, you know, like linking arms together on quote unquote private property or, you know, even turning valves and things. Right. And so that's, 
that's not like the level of domestic terrorism that <laughs> these companies were trying to make it sound like. Right. They didn't and go it, in with it, zip ties and weapons into the Capitol or anything like that, right? right. They didn't yeah, exactly. Bust in any windows of the, they didn't bust in the executive office windows and march in there or anything like that. Right. I was just I was actually yeah, they, just ca- counterposing the you know the the January sixth um, insurrection or whatever, and then also the you know the Capitol occupation in Madison after like the Walker stuff, which is going back a ways now, but you know. Completely different, right? Mm-hmm. A sit-in, a sit-in yeah. in a building is a lot different than you know violently going in and threatening to kill lawmakers and stuff like that. Oh, totally. And and yeah, yet, and yet, who bear who gets some of the worst punishments? It's the you know, the activists that are doing nonviolent civil disobedience. Yeah, I, the, the comparison is it, it blows my mind, and obviously, like the right wing loves to make false equivalencies. Mm-hmm. And so anytime someone brings up January 6th, they'll always be like, oh, what about the Black Lives Matter protests? Right. And it's like, okay, if you really want to quantify this, January 6th, you did something that the Confederacy wasn't even really able to do and right. all that other stuff. And then you compare that to the largest civil, um, civil rights protest movement in our country, and it was largely peaceful. Mm-hmm. You know, there's multiple news organizations did comparative analyses. And, you know, you don't get any attention to just like a, a pretty milk toast protest with people holding signs and right. marching on the sidewalk. You only hear about destructive or controversial things on the sensationalist cable news uh, media. Right. Well, and not, not to mention just the U.S. thing. It was actually, there's a huge global phenomenon. On one of my reports recently, I was talking about, you know, people uh, who visited Colombia for the left-wing government inauguration there and, like, how many questions they were getting about, essentially, about the, um, you know, the uprising and the, you know, the murder of George Floyd and what's going on with police in the U.S. So, like, this, is a glo- this was also a global, uh, you know... Phenomenon. This was not just for the aims of some individual politician in the U.S. This is like you know, this is serious stuff. This is these are serious issues that need to be addressed. A hundred percent. So, well, I want to. I just want to finish the last thing. I'm kind of going. I'm digging deep now. No, uh, December third on Unicorn Riot. I wanted to touch. I think you have it pinned in your uh, on your Twitter as well. I wanted to talk about the um, the Alan Diddy. Uh, story about the the whistleblower who was outed by Carol Levin and uh, ended up uh, committing suicide yeah that's um, that's another one where it's it's still sort of in the works because uh, the family's never received any sort of uh, resolution um, you know they, they didn't they haven't sued or anything yet and I, I hope they do Um so that that's that right. This is a guy. My... This is a guy who worked for Minneapolis for thirty-two years, and then mm-hmm. essentially, um, you know, from that article, basically uh, alerted folks that there was an imminent raid by what Minneapolis police on the um, mm-hmm. on a Black Lives Matter the Black Lives Matter encampment, and then later Kara Levin essentially outed him as that whistleblower, and shortly before his. Uh, retirement he was fired um which was obviously a really bad uh situation for him is that is that essentially the um yeah more, more or less he um he was actually the um i, I can't remember the exact name it's it, it escaping me right now but he was like the number two in charge of the sanitation department uh okay. in minneapolis and so he it, what basically happened was the police were going to raid the jamar clark protest encampment mm-hmm. in north minneapolis the fourth and, precinct i think right yeah, that's right. And the the plan was to have the cops go in first, basically rough up the protesters and disband the groups and sort of retake the space. The fire department was going to come in and put out the bonfires that people had going in the streets. And then his crew in the sanitation department was ordered by the police to start just throwing stuff away. And, you know, there were kids in tents and stuff like that, and they right. were ordered to be violent and just start throwing everything away um, in order to quickly kind of end this. Right. And that was after, at the same protest encampment, um, a, 
I can't remember if she was a Boogaloo boy or what group he was with, but there was a right. a right wing agitator that came and shot at people. Right. And so Al saw all this happening and he was worried. And he was worried for the safety of the people that he was sending into harm's way. And he his interest in leaking this plan to the uh, media was that if there were TV news cameras there, everyone would behave better, mm-hmm. which is the same reason that the police wear body cams, ostensibly. Right. And so he sends it to the assignment desk, or the news desk at CARE 11, and he, he had set up an anonymous AOL account. Okay. It didn't have his name attached to it. And so he asked for anonymity. He sends it to them. And what that person did, uh, she then sends it to a Minneapolis police spokesperson who, interestingly enough, he had recently left CARE 11 to take that job at the city. And so there was obviously this chummy relationship. Right. And um, through this whole story, you can see, like, the relationship between CARE 11 and the city at that time was a lot cozier than I think people would believe, you know, there's supposed to be a firewall right? between the police or whoever in government and your news organization, but you'd hope it was, yeah, you'd hope. Um, obviously in this case there wasn't, and it resulted in Alan, um, dying by suicide. Mm-hmm. And so within like a very short amount of time, I'd have to look at my notes, but I think it was under an hour that spokesperson had already forwarded the whole entire email to the chief of police who then relayed it to the, um, the intelligence team Mm -hmm. and they issued a subpoena to AOL identified him. And then he's put in this really long, uh, employment arbitration process. And I, I tried to get the notes from the city because they, this whole employment investigation thing, it went from like November of that year to, I want to say March or April of the next year. Okay. And he's ordered not to talk to any of his coworkers. No one knows what's going on. He's basically just absent from work. And he's emailing his lawyer the whole time saying like, can we resolve this? I'm sorry. I wish I didn't do this. And he, he it's really tragic. You can see in the emails, he's saying things like, I, I feel like uh, I'm trapped like a squirrel in a trap or something to right. that effect. And it's, it's obvious that he's going through a crisis and the city never did any investigation. It was already determined that they were going to punish him because he, he botched the plan that the police had. Right. And it, it, it's, it's really sad too, because his whistleblowing, obviously I think of it as heroic, Oh, absolutely. but it, in effect, it only bought the protest group like another week or two. And so it wasn't even that big of like a consequence for the police. It just, but like you said, just getting cameras there. I mean, their you know their standard operating right. procedure is going under cover of night, rough people up, throw away all their possessions. The same thing they do with the you know or early in the morning. Same thing they do with mm-hmm. the the um, encampments of you yep. know unhoused folks. It's like I think and and I think in the um, in the article from Unicorn Rat, we'll link to all these articles too in the uh, in the episode. It says. News outlets must take active steps to protect the confidentiality of their communications. When journalists fail mm-hmm. to protect their sources, the consequences can be severe. Sources could lose their job, face retaliation, or even go to prison. Uh, failure right. should be acknowledged as such, and internal source protection policies reviewed and modified. You know, and I think that's super important. You know, like uh, journalists should have integrity. I don't know if uh, yeah. mainstream journalists have heard of this idea, but um, at the very least, they shouldn't go out of their way to expose their sources <laughs> or right. be really I know like. You know, sloppy. That was one thing that really frustrated me too. Is that the the email? Because I have all this information. Right there, the email literally just says in the subject line. It, it's forwarded from Care Eleven to the Scott Soroka at the city. It says just, "Is this legit?" And mm. it was literally just everything was forwarded. Right. They could have scrubbed his email. Right. They could have scrubbed all the requests for anonymity, but right. they didn't. They just forwarded it straight along to their old buddy and who now worked for the police. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the illegality that comes in from the police's actions is that they didn't have a legitimate criminal investigation open into Al. And so that means that the subpoena they submitted to AOL 
was it fraudulent? Mm. And so he was never under investigation. They said it was an obstruction of the legal process case, but that's that statute does not even come close to applying. Mm-hmm. I I spoke to a chief lawyer at the ACLU, and she explained to me that obstruction of, le- of the legal process is like if you physically prevent police from doing something. Right. And he wasn't he wasn't standing in their way. He didn't like take a sanitation department truck and block the right. convoy. Right. He was just interested in getting more accountability and he was behaving as a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. And so issuing an administrative subpoena, which if for people that don't know, that's not a warrant. Mm-hmm. An administrative subpoena is literally just, it's, it's in effect a warrant, but a judge doesn't sign it. Mm-hmm. So there is no judicial oversight. It was literally just the police compelling AOL to hand over his records. Mm-hmm. And so I know, I know, it's sort of a common practice in the cities here and other cities around the country to use these administrative subpoenas. And that is incredibly frustrating because you already have the ability to get warrants. Mm -hmm. So if everything's above board, you should do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so his, his story, unfortunately, it sort of encapsulates a lot of the worst problems of their actions locally. Um, You have bad faith police, you have this relationship with the media that should be a lot different. There should be more space in between. And then you have abuse of uh, surveillance. Mm-hmm. And it ended up with this vindictive political prosecution. And um, I-, I have to say, too, <laughs> Betsy Hodges doesn't come out of this looking very great either. I-, I tried literally now for years to get her to say anything about it, and she just won't. Mm. And so... It's it's bad on all accounts, and a family was torn apart, right. and the man lost his life. Mm-hmm. And so far, he hasn't had any justice. Um, that could change. I know with uh, CUAPB, they have they're pretty active in their litigation now because uh, following the unrest, like their organization, the ACLU, and everybody else, they had an influx of money. So now CUAPB has a pretty good um, legal team. And I, I hope that they would take the case because, you know, even if it's beyond the statute of limitations or whatever, I think that they deserve a day in court and the city has a lot to answer to. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say what that stands for? Oh yeah. Sorry. That's uh communities United against police brutality. Yeah, and, I know. Uh, I just wanted to, well, I, I appreciate, I think we're going to, we're going to end there. I really appreciate you talking with me. Like I said, we'll link to all of these articles and it sounds like you got a lot of other stuff. There's a lot of shady stuff going on. Sh- <laughs> yeah. That's shady, not the other word, but like both of those, but, um, a lot of shady stuff going on here in Minneapolis and people should be paying attention. Um, because, you know, in a free and fair, you know, democratic society, this kind of stuff uh, should not be going on, or when it is, it should be, uh, you know, dealt with and uh, remedied. Um, so I really appreciate all the work you do, and uh, people should keep an eye on Minneapolis Sam, Sam Richards, and uh, look out for more content coming out. Yeah, well, th- thanks again for having me, and uh, I really appreciate being able to talk about all this stuff. Yeah. And that's our interview We covered a lot this week, so I strongly encourage everyone to check out the show notes for this special, which links to a number of articles with more information on all the topics covered. And as always, you can message us on Facebook and SoundCloud with questions, comments, tips, and other podcast ideas. Thanks for listening. Solidarity. This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.